Welcome to the HPG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. So today we continue our New Testament overview with one of the longer letters of Paul in the New Testament. We're going to be doing... um, well, in two separate episodes, we're going to do the first letter to the Corinthians and the second letter next time to the Corinthians. We figured plenty of material to do one episode on uh, First Corinthians. There's a lot of famous passages in First Corinthians. Um, and it's actually one of the easier letters to outline as far as the New Testament letters go. But Corinth is, is also just kind of a famous city mm-hmm. uh, in the first century world. It was uh, the capital of a region called Achaia, which is in the southern portion of modern-day Greece. And you can read about Paul's time there in Acts chapter 18, where he established the church in this city. Yes, and uh, Corinth, if I'm not mistaken, was actually a port city, mm-hmm. um, and so you would ports have, on both sides. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so you can just imagine how much through traffic they would have had. Which one of the things to remember, just like any major city today that has a lot of traffic like that, New York City, L.A., is you also have a lot of different ideas coming through, mm-hmm. which means for a church, a lot of different teachings, a lot of different opportunities for sinful things, and a lot of different uh, issues that Paul is going to address as the letter progresses. Um, and so it's really a, a good letter to read. It is one of the longer letters we have. Romans is 16 chapters, but 1 Corinthians is also 16 chapters long. And Paul has a lot of hard things he needs to say to this congregation on some things they, they need to fix and correct. And it comes in the context of Paul's preaching uh, second preaching trip in Acts the 18th chapter. And it's really one of the first times we see Paul slow down and spend more than what might be just a few months with the church. He ends up spending an entire year and a half in Corinth. Um, and the Lord makes it clear to him that that was his will for him as well. Yeah, it appears that Paul may have actually kind of gotten scared uh, there that someone might attack him to hurt him. And Jesus actually comes to him in a vision and says, no one's going to attack you. Keep speaking. And I love what he says. He says, I have many in this city who are my people. Mm-hmm. So go on speaking. Do not be silent. Don't be afraid. And you think about that. Corinth was known. I mean, it was infamous in the first century world for being a place of rampant immorality and sin. Um an unfortunate thing is the phrase, if you were called a Corinthian girl, that was another name for a prostitute, mm-hmm. um, which tells you about just the terrible culture that's surrounding the Christians there. But you also see the power of the gospel. If the gospel can flourish in a place like Corinth, it can flourish anywhere. That's right. And so it's a, a powerful example, both of the dangers of sin and and letting the culture seep into the church, but it's also a powerful testimony to the gospel changing and transforming lives that have been kind of at the bottom of human corruption. Yes. And bringing up, resurrecting people from even even a situation like that. Yes, Corinth was definitely the original sin city, uh, but it, yeah. it has a reputation for having Christians in it and people who were unfortunately giving in to some of the temptations that were there, and Paul is clear as to what the Christians should be doing about that. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things, like you mentioned, you know, is Corinth is a, it's a place both of commerce but also of culture and ideas coming through. One of the things that Paul will kind of key in on as one of the themes in the book is that the, 
the disciples in Corinth were really kind of infatuated with speaking well and uh, rhetoric ability, um, someone being able to deliver a moving speech. And that was one reason they were so interested in one of the spiritual gifts in particular, uh, speaking in other languages or speaking in tongues. And Paul says, that's, that's not the point. That's not the goal, to draw attention to yourself with that kind of thing. Another thing he'll talk about is human wisdom or knowledge versus God's wisdom and how they were being swayed by the philosophies around them. And one example of that is that he'll address in chapter 15 where the philosophy of resurrection uh, from the dead, of getting your body back, was contrary to the, the Greek philosophy of, no, this, your body is like a prison. You need to get out and get rid of that. Um, and so there were some Christians who had stopped believing in the resurrection at all. And Paul makes it clear, then you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And if Jesus didn't raise from the, rise from the dead, you're still in your sins. Mm-hmm. So worldly philosophy is another uh, big theme that he's kind of combating yeah. both the moral corruption, but also the intellectual corruption that's going around, on around them. T- touching a little bit more on that gift side of things that they were wanting, the, the tongues, it spoke to their arrogance. Paul at many points is going to point out them being arrogant or being puffed up, and their need to humble themselves and love one another in the way Christ loves them. And so keep an eye out for that theme as these brethren are competing with one another and, and you know, almost making or are making camps among themselves on who their favorite preacher is and who they follow. Paul is going to centralize all of them with the love of Christ in the middle of the book in 1 Corinthians 13 that we'll talk about later. And then coupled uh, with that is worldly wisdom versus God's wisdom. As Stephen emphasized, all the different cultures and teachings that would be coming through, it's really important for them to understand that you have no wisdom of your own you have the wisdom of God, and that's what you need to be depending on. Stop listening to the worldly wisdom and start listening to the wisdom that is found in God's Word. And so such a vital uh, several lessons for us. So that's kind of how the book um, is themed around and based off of. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting to, uh, to see kind of a, a high-level outline of First uh, Corinthians. The first six chapters are going to be primarily Paul responding uh, to reports that he has heard about the church there. He'll say in 1 Corinthians 1 and uh, in verse 11, he'll say, It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. (laughs) And there are several other reports that he had gotten, that there's, you know, immorality in the church, that they're suing each other, that there's sexual sin among the brethren. And so chapters 1 through 6 are going to be largely devoted to Paul uh, responding to these reports they've gotten. Mm -hmm. But then in chapter 7, verse 1, he's going to shift gears and say, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Yes. So we know that there's more correspondence going on than we have available to us. And actually, he will mention a previous letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where he says um, in Chapter 5, verse 9, I wrote to you, past tense, in my letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. And so we know that there was a, a point five Corinthians <laughs> before this right. um, that Paul had already written to them. They had written to Paul. Um, and 
chapters 7 through 16 of First Corinthians are him responding. And it's kind of kicked off by the phrase, now concerning yeah. this, now concerning that. You so, know? Yeah, you see those in chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 12, chapter 16. So it really is cool to kind of think about Paul responding to the different questions that they had. But backing up to these uh, first six chapters, specifically in chapter 1, as Stephen pointed out, one of the first things that Paul learns about them is that they're making these divisions among themselves. Uh, in verse 12 of chapter 1, he says, Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Um, and so Paul is very shocked at the idea that they have made these divisions among themselves based off of just who the men that taught them or baptized them were. And he's emphasizing that himself or Peter or any of these other guys weren't the ones that died for them, but it was Jesus, and that's who they need to be dedicated to, not simply this speaker or person that taught them the gospel. And so uh, that really gives way into Paul's conversation of the wisdom that comes from God in chapter 1, verse 18. Yeah. It's really interesting to me that of all the different problems that Paul has to deal with at Corinth, the first one he addresses, and the one that he addresses with the most text, is the problem of unity. That he needs these brethren to get along with each other and to stop dividing themselves based on their favorite teacher or whatever else. And so he attacks this problem from several different angles and talks, you know, like you said, first of all, about, listen, it's not about Paul or Apollos or any of these guys. It's about Christ. He's the one that you need to be rallying around wearing his name, not saying I'm of Paul or Apollos or whatever. But then he, he segues into this idea of, listen, you guys are just infatuated with the idea of worldly knowledge and looking good to the eyes of the world, being a powerful speaker or something. And he says, you have to accept that the message of the cross is going to be foolishness to the world. He says in chapter 1, uh, in verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Uh, so, and this is nothing... Uh, more relevant than to our world, right? Mm -hmm. Than people trying to be impressive, people trying to go along with the wisdom that's popular right now in the world, and that will pass at some point. Um, but the wisdom of God has never really been the popular wisdom with the world. It wasn't true in the first century. It's it's different popular wisdom now, but it's the same basic principle that yes. we did not get swept along in the, the tide of the culture. And so Paul uses himself as an example in chapter 2 as he talks about what he proclaimed to them um, wanting to proclaim Christ and him crucified. That's all he wanted them to know. But it was in much weakness and fear and trembling that his message came, and his preaching was not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. The, the point Paul is making is our impressive, uh, excuse me, our unimpressive nature, our almost boring or, or different problems those are all washed out of the way as we're presenting this glorious and powerful message of Jesus Christ. And really, it, it only makes the message look even stronger as the messenger looks foolish. And it makes them stand so far apart from one another. And so how silly is it for us to try and make ourselves just as powerful or act like we're just as powerful as the message? The, the, the message is the powerful thing, not us. 
And so Paul uses himself as an example there to illustrate that very point, that he's not some big, fancy, talking preacher, but he's just simply there to present Jesus and him crucified. Amen. So, so when he gets into chapter 3 and 4, where what's kind of interesting is, is they're really struggling with the concept of how to treat their teachers. Uh, some of the brethren there are making too big of a deal out of their teachers. And so Paul's saying, listen, I, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was the one given the growth. Put emphasis on him. Don't, don't make a big deal out of your teachers when we're not the emphasis. We're not the focus. But what's interesting is in chapter 4, he'll actually end up talking to some people who were not having enough appreciation for their teachers. He's like, do you think you got here by yourself? You know, I became your father in the faith. Don't act like you just learned this on your own. You are indebted to your teachers on some level. Mm-hmm. And so appreciate them. Hold them up. Um, and so he, he really has to come down pretty hard on the church there because of their misunderstandings and their worldliness, their selfishness, and making this about them and not about Christ. So again, chapters 1 through 4 is the longest section of the book and is all focused on this problem of divisions in the church and worldly philosophy. Yes, and so as he's been emphasizing arrogance there toward the end of chapter 4, he now has to point out a very sad situation in that church. Um, Stephen, your translation is actually more clear here. Do you mind to read chapter 5, verse 1 and 2? Uh, It says, uh, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So there's this shocking revelation given to us as the readers. This is really one of those moments where you see that you're reading someone else's mail. Uh, But apparently... There was a man in that congregation that was sleeping with his father's wife. And instead of the church dealing with that and calling out that sin, they have become puffed up about it. They've become arrogant. And I know you might be wondering, how do you become arrogant about that? I think the idea is that they were priding themselves in their ability to tolerate an odd situation or to tolerate sin. We we are just such a gracious church. We are so forgiving. We realize this is a sin, but we're being sympathetic to what's happening. And Paul is really pointing out how wicked that is. And he will call on this church to realize, A, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough uh, there in verse 6, that if you tolerate this sin now in this congregation— Uh, then there's going to be all kinds of other sins that then people are going to feel like they can do and participate in. But the second thing he's going to point out to them, as he already said in verse 2, is that this wicked man needs to be removed from them. They need to withdraw themselves from him and make him understand that this behavior is not okay. And so Paul emphasizes their need to do that and to not associate with immoral Christians like that um, and show them where they're wrong. And that can be a hard thing to read about and there's a lot of misunderstandings about what's sometimes called church discipline which is what's being described here but Paul is very clear in this letter he says in verse 5 of chapter 5 you were to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord the goal of this behavior to pull back from someone is to protect the church but it's also to help that person be saved when they're not walking in step with God, we can't keep walking in step with them. And so it's to try to help them realize the seriousness of what they're doing. 
And it may well be in 2 Corinthians, we're not sure if it's the same guy or not, but I think we see someone in 2 Corinthians who this type of behavior, the pulling back from them, it helped them repent and they came back. And now he's saying, now you need to reaffirm your love for them and show them how much you care. And so this is one of those topics that kind of comes to a head in 1 Corinthians. It's a helpful example, a specific example of what Jesus described in places like Matthew 18. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't the only problem going yeah. on by and by any means at Corinth. In chapter 6, he talks about two other problems. One is that they're taking each other to court, not settling problems among themselves, but yeah. going before the pagans, going before worldly judges yeah. to settle their own squabbles. Yeah, they're like suing each other. Um, mm-hmm. It really is wild to think about that. But th- this congregation, you can see how Satan is tearing them apart, setting them against one another, and going to law. And I love the really profound point Paul makes in, in verse 7. Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wronged and defraud. You did this even to your brethren. Paul's point is, I would rather you just be wronged than take this out in front of all the pagans and in front of all the Gentiles and all the world. Because what you're doing is you're, you're doing disservice to the gospel of Jesus Christ. People are supposed to be able to look in this church and see people that love each other and are able to settle their own disputes, but instead you're having to go to them. Why not just be wronged in that case? Why not just leave it alone? But you see the arrogance of this congregation and their insistent nature of being right, and I need everyone else to know that I'm right. Paul is later going to emphasize in chapter 9, giving up your right, letting things go, um, being someone that thinks about your brother's conscience and is willing to love them the way that they ought to. Mm-hmm. But that's not the only problem here in chapter 6, is it, Stephen? Yeah, in, in both in the lawsuit culture and in the end of the chapter, Paul addresses rampant sexual immorality, people getting involved with prostitutes, yeah. and how deeply that sin affects you. He talks here about the nature of sexual sin is, is in some ways deep on a deeper level because you're sinning against your own body, and your body is supposed to be a temple of God's Holy Spirit mm-hmm. that is living within you. And in all of these problems, we really see the cultural seepage of Corinth coming in. Uh, They were all about worldly philosophy, and they're divided about worldly philosophy. Um, They were tolerant of sin. Now the church is tolerating sin. People in Corinth made suing each other like a sport. Now some of the brethren are suing each other. There were so many prostitutes in Corinth that they, you know, called prostitutes a Corinthian girl. Now you see the same problem in the church. Mm And so one of the big takeaways from this letter, especially the first parts here, is just to be on guard against letting worldly thinking and worldly behavior slowly creep in. Sometimes we feel like, well, as long as I'm better than the world, then I'm okay. But the thing is, if the world is my standard and just kind of staying away from the world, the world's going to get worse and worse and worse. And I'm just going to be getting worse a few steps behind them. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I'm better than them. We need to hold to God's standards. And that's what Paul is writing about is you are converted to Christ. You need to stop looking at the world and you need to bring back into focus what you're supposed to be. You, your body's supposed to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. So you can't do what everyone else is doing with your body. It is about serving God. And so what's kind of interesting about this is this end of chapter 6 is the last part of him responding to the reports that he's heard. 
But it's going to segue pretty well into chapter 7, where he begins to respond to their letter, because the first question that he responds to that they had written about are questions about marriage and proper sexual relations. Because apparently some people are going to the opposite extreme of not having normal relations that you would in marriage. Yes, and so that's uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Um, And so you see the emphasis Paul is giving that in marriage there is a God-given avenue for sexual relationship. And that, that is a healthy thing. That is okay. That is what God meant it for and it was purposed for. And so uh, Paul even encourages them not to separate from one another with the exception of some time to pray. And, uh, but don't do that for long. Don't prolong that because Satan's going to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Mm-hmm. And so Paul is emphasizing the need for sexual union in the marriage relationship. That, that is the proper bounds that God made it in Genesis 2 and Jesus emphasizes in Matthew 19. And now Paul is emphasizing in 1 Corinthians 7. That is consistent throughout all the scripture, that that is the only place where sex is allowed, is in marriage. And so that gives Paul a bit of a segue into now talking about those that are single. Well, what, what if there is someone that doesn't have a partner um, like that? Yeah. So at the beginning, he says, like, now concerning, you know, these matters uh, about, you know, sexual conduct, but in chapter 7, verse 25, he says, now concerning virgins, you know, the unmarried. Um, I don't have a command from the Lord, but I'll give you some advice. There's a couple of places in 1 Corinthians that are kind of interesting because Paul is very careful to distinguish between what he has from Jesus and what is his opinion that he thinks this would be wise, but is making it clear this is not a command. I'm not saying you have to do this because Paul himself was single when he writes this letter. And so he's saying, I think it's better to be single. I think there's some real advantages to that. And he and he goes through that in the latter half of chapter 7 and says, hey, like here's some advantages. You, you can really serve God in a more focused way in some ways when you aren't worried about your spouse and taking care of them. Yeah. And, and so he gives some real good perspective on that. Yes, and Paul, he can speak to that as a single person himself. Um, I heard someone once say uh, the two people that had the most to say about marriage we're both single in the Bible, Jesus and Paul. Um, and so <laughs> that's they, a good point. They really do give uh, very sound and, and a good advice for us to, to follow. Um, but in, in either case, I think the overwhelming point in chapter seven, whether you're married or whether you're single, you glorify God in your relationship and you do what God expects you to do in the state that you're in. Um, and so that, that's, a, that's kind of the emphasis Paul has there in chapter seven. Yeah. And so he, he again, one of the reasons First Corinthians is one of the easier ones to outline is because Paul says, okay, on to our next subject, yeah, basically. Exactly. Chapter so, 8, verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols. And this concerns some questions regarding idolatry because Corinth was a city filled yeah. with idol temples. And it's really rooted in this congregation kind of being split in some ways. You have some Jewish Christians there and you have some Gentile Christians there, much like the Church of Galatia that we talked about last week. And some of these um, Jewish Christians have a way of thinking that it could be dangerous if they're not careful to think about it. So you can imagine being someone that believes in God. You believe there is one God. You believe in Jesus Christ. And you look out, and there are all of these different animals and meats being sacrificed to these idols. 
Paul talks about that in chapter 8, and he says, I realize how it might be easy for you to fall into the mindset of, you know what? That meat that's been sacrificed to those idols, those aren't even real gods. I can eat that meat. No harm, no fa- Those aren't real gods anyways. What is the big deal with me eating that meat because those aren't real gods? Can you kind of see how that would be easy to kind of fall into that thinking? Well, Paul is going to explain to them that that might make sense on paper, but there are some obvious things you ignored. And the first thing they ignored was the conscience of their brother that they're defiling in the process. Mm-hmm. And that really roots in a lot of the issues that the church in Corinth has is that they're not thinking about God and they're not thinking about their brethren, mm-hmm. but they're thinking about themselves. And Paul has got to flip that on its head for them. You have got to start thinking about the Lord first and your neighbor second. Mm-hmm. And so chapter 8 really delves into, you know, even if this was technically okay, which you'll get to chapter 10 and say it's actually not okay. Yeah. But even if it was, you should be willing to give it up if it causes your brother to stumble. That's right. And in chapter 9, he uses himself as an example of the same principle and saying, hey, I have the right to be supported as a preacher of the gospel financially. Like, I could ask you for money for the service that I'm providing for you, but I have not used my rights because it's not about my rights. It's about helping you to serve Jesus better. And so Paul uses himself as an example to say, listen, I give up my rights for you. So even if you feel like you have this right to go and eat this meat in an idol feast and in a part of a idol worship service, be willing to give up your rights. Yeah. It's not about, well, technically I have my right, which let me just say, in 21st century America, man, this is an issue for us. We think, oh, I have my rights because that's how our country started. It's like we didn't have rights and we wanted rights and so we rebelled. And the kingdom of heaven is not like that. Um, it is about giving up our rights and submitting to first to God, but then even submitting to our brethren who may be confused or discouraged by things that we do in mm-hmm. the name of standing up for our rights. Yeah. And so Paul's example in chapter 9 is of his own humility and his own submission and saying, you know what, I'm yes. not going to take a penny from you guys just to show you that it's not about your rights. Yeah, and so what that's going to take on Paul's end is self-control, which is what he emphasizes at the end of chapter 9. And what's kind of cool is uh, he, he uses some sports analogies to try and emphasize this point of self-control. Uh, he says in chapter nine twenty-five, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Then they do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body, I make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. You just see the leaps and bounds Paul is willing to go through to have that self-discipline in order to, one, not um, do any harm to the conscience of a brother, but ultimately so that he can serve the Lord to his fullest capacity. That's the kind of self-control we need to have. Mm-hmm. And so Paul there in chapter 9 establishes the need to think about this idolatrous stuff from the perspective of your brethren, but then on a much bigger scale, and the bigger thing they need to think about is, what does God think about that? Mm-hmm. And so chapter 10, he really gets to the heart of the matter and is going to sum up 
by saying in chapter 10, verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Yes, it is, it's clear, isn't it? And he's used these Old Testament examples who were all examples of people who have fallen into idolatry and disobedience and says, look to their example and stay away from yeah. it. Don't think you're any better than them. That's right. <laughs> because they would look back and say, oh, look at these poor examples from the Old Testament. He's like, no, you're doing the same thing. And so at the end of the day, he's very clear about it. You go in there and you participate in that idol worship feast, you're worshiping demons. Mm -hmm. And you can't do that and then turn around and take the Lord's Supper, which is going to segue into the next chapter where he's going to talk about a couple of different things. Um, this is a little bit of a different chapter in this last half of the book in that the first half he talks about, I do commend you because you are keeping these traditions, but he wants them to understand what they're doing. And there was something going on there in Corinth that had to do with headship that the created order of what God made was God, then Christ, then man, then woman. Mm -hmm. And there's a relationship down the chain of command. And there was a manifestation of that in how they wore head coverings. And it's, it's a challenging passage because there's not a lot of other New Testament texts that directly talk about this idea of mm -hmm. putting something on your head when you're praying or prophesying. And so we won't try to go into all the different views of this text, but I think it's helpful to see that the text is really rooted in the concept of God, Christ, man, and woman, of headship. And there's a lot of New Testament passages that talk about that principle. This passage expands on it, and it with a specific application of headship. Mm -hmm. But that gives way into the second half of chapter 11, where he is not commending them. Yes. Because they're totally messing up the Lord's Supper. Yes, uh, we learn, um, actually, what he calls what they do is not the Lord's Supper. <laughs> get together, it's not the Lord's Supper you're eating. Yes, that's right, because one takes his own supper first, one's hungry, another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. Um, and so, of course, what we understand was happening with the Lord's Supper you have unleavened bread, and you have fruit of the fruit of the vine, wine. Sometimes uh, would be what some people would use for that. And as this church is meeting on the first day of the week, some of them are drinking way too much and getting drunk. Some of them are eating to excess. Some people who are poor in the congregation can't provide those emblems for themselves, and they're not waiting for those or sharing with those. It's just a mess. And so here's what I love that Paul does, and Jesus does this too. When there's a question on the table as to how to do something or what something is, he goes back to what the Lord said. So that's what Paul starts with in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And Paul goes on to quote exactly how the Lord's Supper was established by Jesus and uh, really pairs up well with how Luke had put it in his gospel. And I love that, that that's how Paul answers this, this problem is by going back to what the Lord Jesus himself said and how he intended for this to happen. Yeah, there's really three solutions given to the way they're messing up the Lord's Supper. The first is remember Jesus and the purpose of it. Do this in remembrance of me. The second is in verses 27 through 32. You need to examine yourself. Really think about who you are before God mm -hmm. and make things right with God, which is actually what the disciples were doing that original night that Jesus started the memorial feast. 
they were saying, Lord, is it I? Am I going to betray you? You know, so they were examining themselves. And the third thing he says in 33 and 34 is consider each other. Wait for each other. If you're hungry, eat at home. You know, uh, but you need to wait for each other. Make sure this is a together thing that you're doing as you're remembering the Lord's death. Yes. And, and so this gives way into the next very clear section um, in chapter 12 through 14. Another yeah. big chunk of the book is devoted to the question uh, now concerning spiritual gifts yeah. and specifically miraculous gifts that were given by God's spirit that they had in those days. And look, I don't know in what order that letter they wrote back to Paul had spiritual gifts but if I had to guess, it was at the top of the list. That was the thing that they wanted to address the most. And I think it's strategic that Paul kind of leaves it toward the back end. And not that it's not important, but I think that they were making it way more important than the order in which Paul needed it to be. Because it all needed to be rooted in love for each other. That That's what it should have been rooted in. And so Paul will give specific details on what the purpose of the gifts are and why they have them and how they should be viewing people with different gifts, emphasizing that no person is better than the other depending on the gift that they have, um, but that they are all using them for the common cause of building up the body of Jesus Christ. That was the whole purpose of the gifts to begin with. Mm-hmm. And so there's this analogy in chapter 12 of the body, you know, and he, he makes clear, don't exclude yourself and don't exclude others. Yeah. Don't feel like, oh, because I'm not an I, I'm not a part of the body, if you don't have some special gift. Don't feel like you're not part of the body of Christ. Uh, or to think, oh, I can't say to the foot, I have no need of you. Well, don't exclude other people because they'd have a gift that's different from yours. And right in the middle of all this, the most famous, easily, uh, passage from 1 Corinthians is uh, chapter 13, mm-hmm. the chapter that is on love. And it's really amazing to think about how this chapter really ties into the rest of the letter. I mean, it, it's specifically in the context of spiritual gifts, and Paul is saying love is the greatest of the gifts. Yes. It is the gift that everyone must have and use to get along with each other. And so it's also interesting, though, to go through the other sections of the letter and to think about the qualities of chapter 13 and how they tie in. Like they're boasting about church leaders in chapters 1 through 4. Love does not boast. Love is not puffed up. It's not arrogant like they were being. Uh, in chapter 5, where they're tolerating sin in the church, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. They were rejoicing at wrongdoing, or at least tolerating it, in uh, chapter 5. And you can go down the list yeah. uh, where they are um, you know, suing each other. Love doesn't insist on its own way. Yeah. Um, does not seek its own um, and so there's all sorts of ways to look at the qualities of love that he gives in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, and see how it's kind of tailored to the problems that the church in Corinth was having. Yes, and so it really ties well into the beginning of chapter 14, pursue love. That, that's what you need to be going after right now. You're worried about speaking in tongues or being able to prophesy, but you really need to be focused on loving one another. And yet, he does say, desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. And so no one, it looks like, is wanting that one. They're all wanting the tongues. But Paul talks about the ability to prophesy and to edify the church, which was the purpose of it there in verse 4. But then he does finally get to talking about tongues with them, understanding the, the proper way to use those, and that why are you speaking in tongues if you don't have anyone there to interpret? What good does that do anybody if everyone is 
uh, not sure what you're saying, then you're not edifying anybody. And so you need to slow down and think about it uh, before you use your tongue or your spiritual gift because it needs to be used for the common cause of edification. Mm-hmm, that's right. And for love, you know, yeah. uh, it's not about you. It's about serving other people. That's right. And so Paul gets to chapter 15, which is the longest discussion in the New Testament about resurrection. Because, like we mentioned early in the letter, the, the Corinthians were being influenced by the Greek culture around them that didn't like the idea of resurrection. And so some of them have just said, you know what, I don't really believe that people rise from the dead at all. And Paul is very clear about the implications of believing that false teaching. And that, listen, if the dead aren't raised at all, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead. You're still in your sins. Our faith is in vain. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. I mean, it's a scathing rebuke of just going through. These are the logical implications of stopping believing in the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection is the cornerstone of the whole Christian faith. And the whole thing falls apart if Jesus did not come out of that tomb. Mm -hmm. And so he walks through this and he does discuss toward the end some things that are kind of mysterious in future that we are going to be raised and we're not sure exactly what our body is going to look like when it does come out. It's going to be different than this body. Um, It's going to be incorruptible, uh, but it is going to be a body that's going to be resurrected out of the tombs. And there's a beautiful section at the end where he talks about the victory that that will bring over death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Mm -hmm. It's just a beautiful conclusion to this discussion and encouraging them to get to work. Stop being influenced by these false doctrines. They'll say in this chapter, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals, right? right. A famous statement in the midst of a discussion on the resurrection. Yes. Um, As well as what possibly some of the false teachers were saying about that in that area. Stop surrounding yourselves with those false teachers and and, uh, understand what the truth of the resurrection is. In chapter 16, Paul now shifts his attention to maybe some questions about the collection that he had commanded. Um, This really ties well with having just done Galatians because he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. And when I arrive, whomever you approve, I will send them with letters to carry or give to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. Um, So Paul was really eager uh, in the book of Galatians. He pointed this out to make sure that brethren were taken care of. And when there was a need, a drought, a famine in different places, he would go around to other churches and get money to take care of those brethren. And the church in Corinth had agreed to be doing that. Paul will emphasize that in the book of 2 Corinthians that we'll get to next week. But Paul points out to them a really efficient way to do this. If you set aside a little bit of money each week, it is now on your mind to be doing so. And so whenever I show up in Corinth to take up this collection, it's not like everybody is just going to be like, oh, oh, yeah, that's right, you said that, and then throw out some money. But it was more deliberate, and there isn't this scurry to get some money together when Paul arrives. And so you just see the practicality of that, and that's why you see a lot of churches today taking up collections on the first day of the week as well. This is where we see that example. Mm Mm-hmm. And so Paul wraps up the letter with several, you know, 
things about his future travel. We learn that he's writing from the city of Ephesus. So apparently this is written on the, the third journey that Paul takes in Acts 19 when he spends three plus years in Ephesus. And so he writes uh, this letter to the church in Corinth and tells them he hopes to see them soon. He's um, hoping uh, to see them. But I love his exhortation in, in, in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14. He says, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. So just like we talked about love is really is kind of at the heart of this letter, that the, the church in Corinth was a church that needed to be mended by love. Yeah. And as tough as Paul has had to be on them in 1 Corinthians, we're going to see, thank God, a, a tremendous change in them by the time we read 2 Corinthians. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of good going on. There's still some stuff that needs to be fixed. There's still some false teachers that need to be dealt with. But yeah. by and large, we see repentance from even a church like this. Yeah. And so uh, Paul ends this in verses 19 to the end, and uh, sorry, 17 to the end, Bringing up names, people they would have known and heard of, especially you see Aquila and Prisca, or that's Priscilla, giving them their greetings in verse 19. They would have known both of those people because that's exactly who Paul was making tents with back in Acts 18 for that year and a half he was there with them. And so uh, they give their blessings, and Paul uh, gives them his goodbye, uh, tells them that the grace of the Lord be with them. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Even after Paul has been hard on them on so many things in this letter, Paul is practicing what he's preaching in that he loves them. And I think that's clear. Uh, he, he loves them so much, and if they can follow that same example, like Stephen pointed out earlier, a lot of the problems that they have would be solved and would be corrected. So that's what they need to be striving for. Lord willing, uh, we will get into 2 Corinthians next week and maybe see some progress reports on some of the things that Paul had emphasized in this letter. Lord willing, we'll take a look at that next week. Yeah. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. Um, If you have questions for us or want to study the Bible, whether you're local or somewhere else, we'd love to connect with you and study with you. 717-585-0949 or email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information about local Bible studies, check out capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.